We'll open up to John chapter 6. I overheard somebody say when they came in, verses 1 through 71. I think implied was, what in the world is he thinking? I had that thought several times this week. When I lay out a sermon series, and I plan roughly what I'm going to cover each week, uh, and it changes from time to time, but you try to pick sections that go together thematically. And I started looking at this chapter, and, and well, we could talk about that, and we'll just deal with the feeding of the 5,000, and then maybe the next time, the Jesus crossing the water, and then the bread of life. And the more I read the chapter, the more I said, it all goes together. So here's the way this is going to work. We're going to spend a little bit of time setting up the chapter, because I think the context is everything. We're going to fly quickly through the first half of it, which means some of these favorite accounts of yours we may not have a lot of time to talk about. That we're going to slow down as we look at Jesus' teaching, specifically on the bread of life aspect, and then look at how the people responded to it. And Lord willing, we should be out of here by 3 o'clock or so. It sh- it'll be fine. <laughs> Don't worry. Right on time. When the Israelites were brought up out of Egypt, The night that they left, God gave them very specific instructions. He told them to take a lamb, one per family. And they were to kill the lamb, cook it as a meal, take some of its blood and put it over the door frames of their house. And on that night, when God brought judgment on the Egyptians, he passed over. And that's what this day became known as, the Passover. He passed over his people and spared their lives, saved them. And then he led them up out of Egypt. And he took them into the wilderness. And as they were on their way there, he took them through what was really an illogical, ridiculous path, which led them smack to the Red Sea. And God miraculously took them through the Red Sea. On the other side, he took them up onto a mountaintop, and there he spoke with them and gave them his law, his covenant with them. He took them into the wilderness from there, and Moses, as God's leader, led his people on, and they began to get hungry, as you can imagine. And there in the wilderness, he fed them. He literally brought bread from heaven. And it collected on the desert floor and they would scoop it up each day and they would eat this bread, this life-sustaining bread provided for them by God. And that day that commemorated the Passover, the day that God led them out, was a special feast day in Israel. And they had days leading up to it that they would prepare for this. And there were specific readings out of the Old Testament where they would read the account of being saved from Egypt. And they would learn how God did this for them. How a lamb was killed so that they might live. How eating this meal together was this sign of faith in the God who delivered them. And then God went on and gave them other instructions how to remember this day for generations to come. One of the instructions in Exodus chapter 12, as they made this meal, they were not to break any of the bones of the lamb. Other instructions then were to do with bread. Bread became a central part of the Passover festival. They were to go through their houses, get rid of all the yeast, and spend their time eating this bread made without yeast as a reminder that they had to leave quickly and God provided for them along the way. So much of this festival was about the food 
that they would eat. The people in Jesus' day continued on these traditions. And you might be thinking, why are we talking about this? What does this have to do with John chapter 6? I believe one of the most important passages or verses in this chapter to understand this chapter is verse 4. Look at John chapter 4. The Jewish Passover festival was near. How many of you, that's your life verse right there, John chapter 6 verse 4? Probably not a lot of people. It's one of those verses you can read right over and just kind of go on through and think, well, John's just telling us roughly what time of year it was. People use the festival accounts in John's gospel to tell us how long Jesus' ministry was, and it's helpful in that way. But John doesn't throw out details unless they're really important to what he's talking about. He's not just telling us a time of the year. He's telling us what was going through the minds of the people. They were preparing for the Passover. They were thinking about the lamb that they had to get to be slain that night and shared as a meal. They were thinking about the bread that they needed to gather for the the seven days of this Passover festival. They were preparing for all of this. And it's into this context that John chapter 6 takes place. And it's immensely helpful, I believe, to look at it through that lens. Because not only did the Passover festival commemorate, celebrate, remember what God did that night that he delivered them from, from Egypt, but it, it also was this memorial, this, this festival of the deliverance of God as he took his people across the, and through the Red Sea, as he took them to the mountain and he spoke to them, as he fed them manna from heaven. It was also a memory of something they probably would rather forget. That throughout their days in the wilderness, as God led them and provided for them, they had a tendency to complain. They grumbled constantly. Oh God, we know you did this in the past, but what are you going to do for us now? Thinking about the Exodus, and about the, uh, Moses in particular as God's chosen leader of his people through the Exodus, another prophecy would have rung in their heads. It was a prophecy spoken by God through Moses that one day Moses would pass away. And yet Moses told them, or rather God told them through Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 18, he said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command them, or him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Moses was a hero. Israel. And yet they had, even there in the text about Moses, this idea that another one would come, this other prophet. And this foretelling of the prophet that would come began wrapped, it became wrapped into a larger picture of the Jewish Messiah that would come. He would be like Moses, a mouthpiece, a prophet of God. He would speak the very words of God, but also like Moses, he would lead his people to salvation. He would provide for their everyday needs. So with all of that in our minds, I want now to turn to John chapter 6. I'm going to read as we walk through this as much as we have time for. As time goes by, we may have to summarize some. But, but frankly, I'd like you to at least hear the text, even if I don't have time to say a lot about it. 
But look at John chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So here they are, up on a mountain, away from where most of the people lived, might even call it the wilderness. And Jesus is talking. It's an interesting thing when you say Jesus is talking, because whenever Jesus is speaking, guess who's speaking? God. God is talking. And there's a problem. They don't have food. These people have followed him, and they need something to eat, and they don't have food. And so they find this child that is willing to share the lunch and, and they divide up. Jesus miraculously divides up the loaves and the fish and he feeds this crowd. Scholars estimate the crowd was probably over 10,000 people. They tended to count crowd size by men only, but when you add in the women and the children that were probably likely there as well, this was a large crowd. Lots of people were there to hear Jesus. Now, some want to reduce this miracle and they'll say, well, the boy shared and, and as he was willing to share, other people said, well, I'm willing to share too. And they began to bring out their food and everybody shared and everybody had enough to eat. Have you ever heard that explanation? You'll hear this all the time when people try to explain away miracles in scripture. Can I tell you, it takes a whole lot more faith to explain these things away than to just trust what God's word says. Because later on in the text, this big crowd of people is going to walk all the way around the lake to get more food. So if these people are right, they share, they walk a long way so that they can share some more. That makes no sense at all. They followed Jesus because they wanted more food, because he miraculously gave them food just as Moses did, so they thought, in the wilderness. They want the food. And notice that verse in verse 14. Surely this is the prophet. Do you see what's in their head? That prophet, just like Moses. Hey, we're starting to put some pieces together. This guy gave us food. Is this the guy? And the answer is yes, but not as they thought. Then we go to this other account that almost seems 
odd to have it shoehorned into this story because he's going to go from feeding them bread and in a moment he's going to explain what that bread was all about. But in the middle of this, we have Jesus and his disciples and they're crossing a sea. Verse 16, when evening came, the disciples went down to the lake. This is the Sea of Galilee where they got into the boat, a boat, and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But they said to him, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So the crowd is putting two and two together. They saw the disciples leave. Jesus didn't go with them, and yet none of them are there now. Where is he? And then we're given the scene from the disciples' perspective. They get onto this boat. They begin rowing across this lake known as the Sea of Galilee. And they're stuck in the storm. Jesus miraculously walks out on the water to them. Now, John here leaves out the part about Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water. And I think that's because for John, he always wants to keep the attention on Jesus Christ. It's not that that wasn't important. It is. But but John is keeping the focus squarely on Jesus Christ. But again, don't miss what's going on here. Jesus talks to people on a mountain. He miraculously feeds them. And now there's a miracle of crossing some water by God's divine intervention. There's a trend going on here. Now again, some people want to explain this one away. They'll say, well, they were just rowing along the shore and Jesus was walking on the shore and it was foggy and they kind of freaked out. And Why would the people, again, have walked so far to find him if that's what was going on? Why would the disciples have thought, oh, it's a ghost? Most of these guys were fishermen. They, wouldn't have, they would have known the shores right there. This is a miracle. I've called this section in the passage a mountain, some food, crossing a sea. Because all of those themes come right out of the Exodus story. And these things were in the Jewish people's minds as every day they were going to the synagogue or in their homes, they were reading the account of the Passover because that's how they prepared for the Passover. And John says, the time for the Passover was near. They would have been putting these things together And we see that they're putting these things together because of the conversation that takes place next. The crowd catches up with Jesus in Capernaum. We learn later on in the passage, uh, verse 59, that he is in a synagogue and he's teaching. And this whole account now of this teaching, this speaking from Jesus to the people, is taking place in the Jewish synagogue. And this is what they talk about. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. 
Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. They want more food. Now, it would be easy at this point to stand in judgment on them and say, well, they're so selfish, they just want food. A lot of these people would have been poor. And if you've ever traveled to poorer areas, either of our country or especially around the world, you you understand that for poor people, especially, the majority of their time is, where can I get food? How can I feed myself? How can I feed my family? You add on to that the Passover, when they're thinking about this particular meal that they have to eat, the particular bread that they have to make, and all of this comes together, and this guy that might be this prophet that gave them food. And they say, we want to go where he is to see what he does again. But Jesus says to them, you're looking for me not because of the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now that's an interesting statement. Because what was the sign that he performed? Well, he gave them loaves so that they could eat their fill. So if they saw the loaves and the fish and they ate their fill, didn't they also see the sign? And here's where we get at the heart of what Jesus is saying in this passage. And frankly, what John is bringing out throughout this gospel, there are always two things going on. One is the level of our day-to-day lives. The food that we eat, the clothes that we wear, the families that we raise, the job that we do, the stuff of this world that we see that we have needs and we ask for God's help in. And those things are good and they're important most of the time. But Jesus is always saying that there's a deeper need. There's the spiritual need that we have to be made right with God. That the life we have in this world is important. But we have a need to be made right with God forever. And so what he's saying to them is, you saw the loaves and fish. You ate the food, but you missed that it was a sign pointing to something deeper. You're stuck here. You just want more food. You want another meal to get you through another day. And Jesus is going to offer them so much more. He says, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. So they're interested. Hey, okay, is there food that will just go on forever or food so that we'll never have to eat again? This is wonderful. How do we get that? What do we have to do to get that kind of food? Jesus says it's easy. Believe in the one God has sent. Now they're starting to catch on a little bit. Well, okay, Jesus. Moses was sent by God to the Israelites to deliver them, but but he did some signs to prove who he was before the Israelites followed him. And so they asked Jesus, verse 30, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is one of the most shocking verses. He just fed between five and 10,000 people with a handful of loaves and fish with 12 basketfuls left over. And they had the audacity to ask him, um, so what are you going to do to prove it to us? Really? Because they want more food. But Jesus understands that they have a deeper need. Verse 32, Jesus said to them very truly, I tell you, 
It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Moses didn't even give them the bread. They were saying, well, of course we believe in Moses. Look at all that he did. And Jesus is saying, you've got it all wrong. Moses didn't do any of it. God did. God saw your need. He saw that you needed food. And he gave you food from heaven. And he's doing the same thing in this moment in their history. He's saying, you have a deeper need. You have a need for spiritual life, eternal life. And God is sending you an answer from heaven. Not earthly food, not physical bread, but true bread that will satisfy the deepest need of your heart. The bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they're all in. Verse 34, sir, they said, always. Always. It's not just, hey, can we taste it? It's, man, just keep it coming. Just give us this bread. This is great. Let's just keep it coming. Now we're getting to what we want. And then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Verse 35. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up in the last day. Understand what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, guys, I'm not, I'm not really talking to you about bread. In case you haven't caught on to this, it's, it's not really about a meal. I fed you, but that's not your deepest need. And Jesus does what Jesus always does. And what John always points out, Jesus is getting at their heart issue and he is focusing all of this conversation and all of the history of the Passover and the Exodus and what they're going through right now, he's focusing it all on him. He's saying, guys, this is all about me. This is about me giving you eternal life. This is about you not looking for bread, but coming to me and believing in me for eternal life. The problem is, they wanted bread. They were stuck here, their day-to-day lives. Where where do we get the food? Wait a minute, are you saying we're not actually going to get food this time? And Jesus is saying, you need to look here. You have a deeper spiritual need. Guys, we do the same thing. We do it all the time. And and it's right, and it's good, and we have needs, and we bring them to God. God, I I need this job. God, I need another meal. I I need more money. I need healing. I need things. I need a car. I need help. I want to help these other people. These are all good things. Wanting food to eat when you're hungry is not sinful and wrong. It's the way God made us. But there's always something deeper going on. It becomes wrong when we spend all of our life on those normal day-to-day things. And we miss the fact that God has something so much greater going on. 
And so Jesus is pointing them to himself. And he's calling them out. Here they are, the Jewish nation. Here's their Messiah. And yet he's telling them, some of you don't even believe. And at this point, it raises a question. Why is it that some believe and some don't? Because they're sitting there in judgment on him. Hey, supposed Messiah, if you will just do one more trick, we'll believe in you. If you'll just give us the thing that we want, then we'll believe in you. If you just do what you can do to meet our needs, then we will make the choice to believe in you and you'll be our Messiah. Jesus says, oh, you've got it all wrong. You think you get to sit in judgment on me. He says, frankly, the reason you're not understanding and the reason others do is that God chose them. I've called the sermon an uncomfortable truth. Because for them, the things that Jesus is talking about here is uncomfortable. And I think for many of us today, it still is. But look at what he says. This is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but will raise them up at the last day. Jesus says, your belief doesn't actually depend upon you. It depends upon the all-powerful, sovereign God. And God's plan has always and will always succeed. It was all about God's will. The will of God is not undermined and not determined by public opinion or cultural shifts. It doesn't matter what this world does. The will of God is not determined by the number of people sitting in the pews or chairs on Sunday mornings. God's will prevails. Period. It's always been that way. God chose His people. Abraham didn't wake up one day and say, Hey, I think I'm just going to leave my father's land and my household and give up everything and I'll go to the promised land. No, God came to him, chose him and said, go. The Israelites end up in Egypt as slaves. They didn't wake up one day and say, hey, we're kind of sick of this whole Pharaoh guy. I think we'll just leave. God came to them and said, I am leading you out. Moses didn't wake up one day and say, hey, my people, I think I'll go rescue them. In fact, when God came to him, Moses says, I don't want to do it. Don't choose me. Choose somebody else. Yet God chose him. The Israelites were founded on, based on the notion that God had chosen them. And they thought that meant that was it. But Jesus says, look, some will come and believe because God has given them that power to believe in him, but some won't. And look at how they respond. Verse 41, at this, the Jews there began to, what? Grumble. That's a good Old Testament word right there. Murmured is another translation. Just like the people in the Old Testament. They don't like what Jesus is saying. Guess what? The people in the Old Testament didn't like what God said to them in the wilderness. They didn't like their situation, so they grumbled. They murmured. They complained, and they're doing it again. They began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? How are they looking at Jesus? They're looking at him through this lens. 
their day-to-day life. We saw him grow up as a boy. We know his mom. We know his dad. We know what they did. They were nothing special. And they're judging him. But they're missing the deeper truth that this is the eternal Son of God, the promised Messiah that has come into the world to take away our sin and offers eternal life. They're missing it because they're stuck in their perspective. Jesus answers them, verse 43, Stop grumbling among yourselves. Jesus answered, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from Him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only He has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, I am the one, or very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Let me stop there. They longed for the day, prophesied long ago, shown to them with Moses in the wilderness and God's provision for the people. And they longed for that day. Another one is coming that will meet our needs. And they had a long grocery list of needs that they were ready to be met. And they were bringing those to Jesus. Okay, do this, do this, do this. And Jesus is saying, you have such a deeper need. I am the one that came from heaven. I am the true, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And then he said, whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. They wanted the means that God would give them to save their life, to provide for their needs, the food that they thought they needed. And Jesus is saying, you're not going deep enough. So the thing that's going to meet your deepest need is Jesus Christ. And he uses this phrase, the bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, some people will stop here. Our friends in the Catholic Church get tripped up, I think, in this language right here. So they say, see, that's what communion is. When we eat the bread, we're literally eating the flesh of Jesus. When we drink from the cup, we're literally drinking the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, I respectfully disagree. That's missing the whole point of what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying, I'm not talking about the stuff of this world. I'm not talking about actual bread and food. I'm talking about your spiritual need. To miss that is to miss the point of what Jesus is saying. The Jewish people can't get over it. Verse 52, the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. There's a calm word for probably what went on. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus is so helpful. He he just wants to smooth all this over. And so he says this, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, well, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, again, remember, he's in a Jewish synagogue. This is happening in a synagogue. He's saying these things that are not only gross, they're completely against the Old Testament law. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them just as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. 
But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. I cannot possibly communicate to you how offensive this was to them. And that's Jesus' point. Because he's trying to shake them out of where they're stuck to get them to look deeper. They have a deeper need than bread. And I think here, because he's been talking about bread, and now he brings in this concept of blood. Remember, what time was it? It was about the time of the Jewish Passover. And in the Passover, they slaughtered a lamb, and they ate it. The lamb was sacrificed for them. And the blood was applied to their situation to save them. And again, people will look at this and say, see, he's talking about communion. He's not talking about communion here. He's talking about the cross. He would be the lamb. John the Baptist constantly referred to him as the lamb of God. John the gospel writer brings out one detail that as far as I know, the other gospel writers don't, that when Jesus was on the cross, not one bone of his was broken. Why does he bring that detail out? Because the Passover lamb, as required by God, could not have its bones broken. Jesus is saying, guys, all of this Old Testament history, everything that God has been doing up to this point is to point you to Jesus Christ. And then one day, yes, he will institute communion, which involves eating and drinking. But the point of that is to look back to the cross. It's all about the cross of Jesus Christ. It's amazing, frankly, how Christians today still want to talk about the stuff of this world and bread and drink, and we still miss that it's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying in our place for eternal life. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? <laughs> Jesus asked the most pointed questions sometimes. So you think that's bad. Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? If you can't accept that I came down from heaven to save you, what are you going to think when you see me go back there? Man, your minds are going to really be blown then. The Spirit, listen to this verse, verse 63. Because this puts all of it again into context. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life, yet there are some who do not believe. She said, guys, I'm not not talking about physical stuff. I'm not talking about literal bread. I'm not talking about literal blood. I'm talking about me being the Lamb of God that's going to die in your place. But Jesus knew who would betray him. Look at verse 66. From this time... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. How many followers did Jesus have at the beginning of John chapter 6? At least 5,000 people, possibly as many as 10. We're all excited. Hey, this is the guy. Let's, he's the prophet. Let's make him king. How many does he have at the end of the chapter? 11. This is the worst church growth strategy in the history <laughs> But it's truth. 
And frankly, there's so many Christians that want to win the world by sucking the truth out of the gospel and thinking that will change the life, change lives. Jesus will have none of it. This is the best growth strategy ever. Because it's better to have 11 who say, we trust you. Look at what Peter says. Verse 67, he turns to them. You don't want to leave too, do you? This isn't Jesus whining. Oh, please don't go away. He knows. Simon Peter answered him. This is beautiful. Simon Peter struggles a lot, but this is beautiful. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's faith. Faith isn't looking at what God does and say, hmm, I like this and I like that. I'll take a little bit of this over here, but this over here, no, don't like that. I don't need to follow that. That's not faith. That's playing God. Faith is, I don't necessarily understand what God's doing. I don't necessarily even like it. And I read this stuff in Scripture and I don't get it and I don't even like it. It doesn't seem like maybe it applies today. But this is the Word of God. And I trust Him, period. And so we follow. Guys, today we're just like those crowds. We think we get to decide who Jesus should be. And Jesus says it doesn't work that way. Jesus is pointing to Him. It's offensive. It's hard. But it's truth. God's sovereign plan, His sovereign will, shines through all of this. And when God is doing things that you don't understand, and maybe you would love to argue with Him about, and you're not getting answers, you need a big picture of His sovereignty. It doesn't make it all warm and fuzzy and go away, but it gives you something to grab onto to say, God is God, and I am not, and I will trust Him. And when it looks like the gospel is losing in this world, when it looks like the culture is falling away and the world is doing its own thing and everything is going to fall apart and the church is going to disappear, we need a big picture of the sovereignty of God. Nothing else will do. We have to hold on to that. When you're looking at your own life and you're saying, I don't know if I can believe, I don't know if I can trust, I don't know if I can hold on one more day, You need to know a big picture of the sovereignty of God who began arranging little details over a thousand years and more so that all of it one day could be used by the Son of God to point to who He is and how He saves us. That's the God that's at work in your life today. So what about you? Friends, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to hear the truth that it is all about Jesus. You might be here today saying, well, I just want to live a good life. I just want to be a good person. That's wonderful. But what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Because the whole point of this dialogue with the people was to confront them with the truth. They had to decide what they believed about Him. And the Gospel of John says over and over, whoever believes can be saved. You need to hear that. You need to accept Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter what the person next to you thinks. Doesn't matter what this church teaches. Well, it matters what we teach. But in terms of your personal faith, you need to accept Jesus. Nobody gets Jesus secondhand by just rubbing shoulders with other people. You need to decide what you believe about Jesus Christ. 
If you're here today and you've accepted Jesus Christ and somebody asks you one day, why are you a Christian? You say, because of the will of God. It had nothing to do with me. He gets all the credit and all the glory because it really is all about Jesus. Don't miss this. Heavenly Father, this is an offensive truth in our world. To say that Jesus Christ is your son. That he bore our sins in his flesh on the cross. That he died in our place. That he and he alone offers eternal life to all who believe. It is offensive. But it is also the truth. And in that truth there is hope. And there is life. And there is meaning. And there is comfort. And so we will not water it down. We will shout it from the rooftops. And may our speaking, may our actions, may our thoughts and our day-to-day lives, may all of it point people to the truth of Jesus Christ, that they may have life, life eternal. In his name we pray. Amen.